Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 366. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Welcome to HP Lovecraft Month here on the Drabblecast. This is a big month for us, as many of you know. It's our seventh year doing this, and every year it seems to get bigger and bigger. It's by far our most downloaded set of stories each year. And the funny thing is, it's not because of Lovecraft. A lot of our listeners admittedly aren't even familiar with Howard Phillips Lovecraft, born in August 1890, who many, or maybe just us, refer to as the godfather of weird fiction. I like Lovecraft's writing, sure. He was racist and kind of a dick, but aren't we all except for everyone who isn't? Lovecraft's writing has its moments, but he's no Faulkner or Hemingway, because certainly those are different last names. It's his ideas, and the way he gradually built horror and weirdness, not just in each single work, but throughout his entire body of work that influenced future generations of speculative fiction writers and inspires various degrees of fanfic by the metric ton to this day. HP's ideas on cosmic horror and the monstrous indifference of space and time, on entities and forces outside our scope of understanding that would drive us mad at the very knowing, were so distinct and badass that while he was hardly noticed during his time, his name is widely associated today with not just a particular style, but with a horror mythos that's influenced everyone from Stephen King to, well, the three commissioned guest authors we're featuring this month. That's right. Each August in H.P. Lovecraft Tribute Month, we commission three squamous, charnel, remarkably talented authors to write three stories for us, somehow drawing upon or inspired by some aspect of Lovecraft's style or mythos. You don't have to know Jack about Lovecraft or his work to enjoy the stories this month. You just have to find pleasure in wonder, the unexpected, the unexplored, just like the elder godfather of weird fiction himself. Our three original commissioned stories this month are written by Oliver Buckram, Carolyn Yoakum, and Merle Lafferty. Oh yeah, that's a Cyclopean lineup worth allulating about, bitches. But first, we always launch off the month with a tale from the man himself, and this year we're bringing you an epic and awesome tome indeed. We bring you H.P. Lovecraft's The Whisperer in Darkness, a novella broken into two parts. This is possibly Lovecraft's most mythos-heavy story, whereas a lot of Lovecraft's fiction only alludes to some greater pantheon of monstrous, immeasurable forces, of chaos and governance far beyond our tiny, pathetic understanding of the universe, Lovecraft dives balls first into that good stuff here. Also, it has some pretty great moments in it for other reasons. It has the best, most to-the-point, cut-to-the-chase opening Lovecraft line of any story ever, especially considering it's the opening line to a 25,000-word story. 
It has some really adorable 1930s astronomical stuff. And it has a line that, if you're familiar with the man, the good, the bad, and the miasmal, biliferous, manifold, and prosaically amorphous, necrophagous, manifold, cacodemoniacal, gloaming, stygian, ugly, then you'll icker, monolith. It'll grab your attention, and you'll know exactly why it's so perfect and ironic. Like casually overhearing an abortion clinic doctor say, I kid you not. Oh, that's not right. I'm sorry. Either way, keep your ear open for it, and stay tuned after the first half of our story this week for a new month-long-only segment called H.P. Lovecraft's Nameless, Inconceivable, Maddening Mad Libs, where I prompt our fans and followers on Twitter to contribute fun, creative words to replace and fill in unknown words from a particularly purple Lovecraft excerpt. It's good times. The Whisperer in Darkness was written in 1930 and was first published in the August edition of Weird Tales. So without further ado, we bring you The Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft. Whisperer in Darkness by H.P. Lovecraft 1. Bear in mind closely that I did not see any actual visual horror at the end. To say that mental shock was the cause of what I inferred, that last straw which sent me racing out of the lonely Akeley farmhouse and through the wild domed hills of Vermont in a commandeered motor at night, is to ignore the plainest facts of my final experience. Notwithstanding the deep things I saw and heard, and the admitted vividness the impression produced on me by these things, I cannot prove even now whether I was right or wrong in my hideous inference. For after all, Akeley's disappearance establishes nothing. People found nothing amiss in his house, despite the bullet marks on the outside and inside. It was just as though he'd walked out casually for a ramble in the hills and failed to ever return. There was not even a sign that a guest had been there, or that those horrible cylinders and machines had been stored in the study. That he had mortally feared the crowded green hills and endless trickle of brooks among which he'd been born and reared means nothing at all either, for thousands are subject to just such morbid fears. The whole matter began, so far as I am concerned, with the historic and unprecedented Vermont floods of November 3rd, 1927. I was then, as now, an instructor of literature at Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts, and an enthusiastic amateur student of New England folklore. Shortly after the flood, amidst the varied reports of hardship, suffering, and organized relief which filled the press, there appeared certain odd stories of things found floating in some of the swollen rivers, so that many of my friends embarked on curious discussions and appealed to me to shed what light I could on the subject. 
I felt flattered at having my folklore study taken so seriously and did what I could to belittle the wild, vague tales which seemed so clearly an outgrowth of old rustic superstitions. It amused me to find several persons of education who insisted that some stratum of obscure, distorted fact might underlie the rumors. The tales thus brought to my notice came mostly through newspaper cuttings, though one yarn had an oral source and was repeated to a friend of mine in a letter from his mother in Hardwick, Vermont. The type of thing described was essentially the same in all cases, though there seemed to be three separate instances involved. One connected with the Winooski River near Montpelier, another attached to the West River in Wyndham County beyond Newfane, and a third centering in the Pasumpsic in Caledonia County above Lindenville. Of course, many of the stray items mentioned other instances, but on analysis they all seemed to boil down to these three. In each case, country folk reported seeing one or more very bizarre and disturbing objects in the surging waters that poured down from the unfrequented hills, and there was a widespread tendency to connect these sites with a primitive, half-forgotten cycle of whispered legend which old people resurrected for the occasion. What people thought they saw were organic shapes not quite like any they'd ever seen before. Naturally, there were many human bodies washed along by the streams in that tragic period, but those who described these strange shapes felt quite sure that they were not human, despite some superficial resemblances in size and general outline. Nor, said the witnesses, could they have been any kind of animal known to Vermont. They were pinkish things, about five feet long, with crustaceous bodies bearing vast pairs of dorsal fins or membranous wings and several sets of articulated limbs, and with a sort of convoluted ellipsoid covered with multitudes of very short antennae where a head would ordinarily be. It was really remarkable how closely the reports from different sources tended to coincide, though the wonder was lessened by the fact that the old legends shared at one time throughout the hill country furnished a morbidly vivid picture, which might well have colored the imaginations of all the witnesses concerned. It was my conclusion that such witnesses, in every case naive and simple backwoods folk, had glimpsed the battered and bloated bodies of human beings or farm animals in the whirling currents, and had allowed the half-remembered folklore to invest these pitiful objects with fantastic attributes. The ancient folklore, while cloudy, evasive, and largely forgotten by the present generation, was of a highly singular character, and obviously reflected the influence of still earlier Indian tales. I knew it well, though I had never been in Vermont, through the exceedingly rare monograph of Eli Davenport, which embraces material orally obtained prior to 1839 among the oldest people of the state. This material, moreover, closely coincided with tales which I had personally heard from elderly rustics in the mountains of New Hampshire. Briefly summarized, it hinted at a hidden race of monstrous beings which lurked somewhere among the remoter hills, in the deep woods of the highest peaks and the dark valleys where streams trickle from unknown sources. These beings were seldom glimpsed, but evidences of their presence were reported by those who had ventured farther than usual up the slopes of certain mountains or into certain deep, steep-sided gorges that even the wolves shunned.
There were queer footprints or claw prints in the mud of brook margins and barren patches, and curious circles of stones, with the grass around them worn away in a fashion that did not seem to have been placed or entirely shaped by nature. There were, too, certain caves of problematic depth in the sides of the hills, with mouths closed by boulders in a manner that was scarcely accidental, and with more than an average quota of the queer prints leading both toward and away, if indeed the direction of these prints could be easily estimated. And worst of all, there were the things, which adventurous people had seen only rarely in the twilight of the remotest valleys, in the dense, perpendicular woods above the limits of normal hill-climbing. It would have been less uncomfortable if the stray accounts of these things had not agreed so well. As it was, nearly all the rumors had several points in common, averring that the creatures were a sort of huge, light red crab, with many pairs of legs and with two great bat-like wings in the middle of the back. They sometimes walked on all their legs, and sometimes on the hindmost pair only, using the others to convey large objects of indeterminate nature. On one occasion they were spied in considerable numbers, a detachment of them wading along a shallow woodland watercourse, three abreast in evidently disciplined formation. Once a specimen was seen flying, launching itself from the top of a bald, lonely hill at night and vanishing into the sky as its great flapping wings silhouetted against the full moon. These things seemed content on the whole to let mankind alone, though they were at times held responsible for the disappearance of venturesome individuals, especially persons that built houses too close to certain valleys or too high up on certain mountains. Many localities came to be known as inadvisable to settle in, the feeling persisting long after the case was forgotten. People would look up at some of the neighboring mountain precipices and shudder, even when not recalling just how many settlers had been lost and how many farmhouses burnt to ash on the lower slopes of those green, grim sentinels. But while, according to the earliest legends, the creatures would appear to have harmed only those trespassing on their privacy, there were later accounts of their curiosity regarding men, and of their attempts to establish hidden outposts in our world. There were tales of the queer claw prints seen around farmhouse windows in the morning, and occasional disappearances in regions outside the haunted areas. Tales of buzzing voices imitating human speech, which made surprising offers to lone travelers on the roads of the deep woods, and of children frightened out of their wits by things they had seen or heard, where the primal forest pressed close to their yards. In the final layer of legends, the layer just preceding the decline of superstition and the abandonment of close contact with the dreaded places, there are shocked references to hermits and remote farmers who at some period of life appeared to have undergone a repellent mental change, and who were shunned and whispered about as mortals that had sold themselves to the strange beings. In one of the northeastern counties, it seemed to be a fashion around 1800 to accuse eccentric and unpopular recluses of being allies or even representatives of the abhorred things. As to what the things were, explanations naturally varied. The common name applied to them was 
Those ones, or the old ones, though other terms had a local and transient use. Perhaps the bulk of the Puritan settlers set them down bluntly as familiars of the devil, making them a basis of odd theological speculation. Those with Celtic legendry in their heritage, mainly the Scotch-Irish element of New Hampshire, and their kindred who had settled in Vermont on Governor Wentworth's colonial grants, linked them vaguely with the malign fairies and little people of the bogs and raths, and protected themselves with scraps of incantation handed down through many generations. But the Indians had the most fantastic theories of all. While various tribal legends differed, there was a marked consensus of belief in certain vital particulars, in being unanimously agreed that the creatures were not native to this earth. The Penacook myths, which were the most consistent and picturesque, taught that the winged ones came from the great bear in the sky, and had mines in our earthy hills whence they took a kind of stone that they could not get on any other world. They did not live here, said the myths, but merely maintained outposts and flew back with vast cargoes of stone to their own stars in the north. They harmed only those earth people that got too near them or spied upon them. Animals shunned them through instinctive hatred, not because of being hunted. They could not eat the things and animals of earth, and so brought their own food from the stars. It was bad to get near them, and sometimes young hunters who went into their hills never came back. It was not good, either, to listen to what they whispered at night in the forest, with voices like bees that tried to be as voices of men. They knew the speech of many kinds of men, Penacooks, Hurons, men of the five nations, but did not seem to have or have need for any speech of their own. They talked with their heads, heads which changed color in different ways to mean different things. At the turn of the nineteenth century, of course, all the legendary, white and Indian alike, had died down, aside from occasional atavistic flare-ups. The ways of the Vermonters became settled, and once their habitual paths and dwellings were established according to a certain fixed plan, they remembered less and less what fears and avoidances had determined that plan, and even that there had been fears or avoidances in the first place. Most people simply knew that certain hilly regions were considered highly unhealthy, unprofitable, and generally unlucky to live in, and that the farther one kept from them, the better off one usually was. In time, the ruts of custom and economic interest became so deeply cut in approved places, there simply was no longer any reason for going outside them, and the haunted hills were left deserted by accident rather than by design. Save during infrequent local scares, only wonder-loving grandmothers and retrospective nonagenarians ever whispered of beings dwelling in those hills, and even such whispers admitted there was not much to fear from those things, now that they were used to the presence of houses and settlements, and now that human beings let their chosen territory severely alone. All this I had long known from my reading and from certain folk tales picked up in New Hampshire. Hence, when the flood-time rumors began to appear, I could easily guess what imaginative background had evolved them. 
I took great pains to explain this to my friends, and was correspondingly amused when several contentious souls continued to insist on possible elements of truth to the reports. Such persons tried to point out that the early legends had a significant persistence and uniformity, and that the virtually unexplored nature of the Vermont hills made it unwise to be dogmatic about what might or might not dwell among them. Nor could they be silenced by my assurance that all myths were of a well-known pattern common to most of mankind, determined by early phases of imaginative experience which always produced the same type of delusion. It was of no use to demonstrate to such opponents that the Vermont myths differed but little from those universal legends of natural personification which filled the ancient world with fauns and dryads and satyrs, suggested the Kalankanzari of modern Greece, and gave to wild Wales and Ireland their dark hints of strange, small, terrible, hidden races of troglodytes and burrowers. No use either to point out the even more startlingly similar belief of the Nepalese hill tribes and the dreaded Migo, or abominable snowmen who lurk hideously amidst the ice and rock pinnacles of the Himalayan summits. When I brought up this evidence, my opponents turned it against me, claiming that it must imply some actual historicity for the ancient tales, that it must argue the real existence of some queer elder earth race driven to hiding after the advent and dominance of mankind, and which might very conceivably have survived in reduced numbers to relatively recent times, or even the present." The more I laughed at such theories, the more these stubborn friends asserted themselves, adding that even without the heritage of legend, the recent reports were too clear, too consistent and detailed, and sanely prosaic in manner of telling, to be completely ignored. Two or three fanatical extremists went so far as to hint at possible meanings in the ancient Indian tales, which gave the hidden beings a non-terrestrial origin, citing the extravagant books of Charles Fort and their claims that voyagers from other worlds and outer space have often visited our Earth. 2. As was only natural under the circumstances, this piquant debating finally got into print in the form of letters to the Arkham Advertiser, some of which were copied in the press of those Vermont regions whence the flood stories came. The Rutland Herald gave half a page of extracts from the letters on both sides, while the Battleboro Reformer reprinted one of my long historical and mythological summaries in full, with some accompanying comments in The Pendrifters, thoughtful columns supporting and applauding my skeptical conclusions. By the spring of 1928, I was almost a well-known figure in Vermont, notwithstanding the fact that I had never set foot in the state. Then came the challenging letters from Henry Akeley, which impressed me so profoundly and which took me for the first and last time to that fascinating realm of crowded green precipices and muttering forest streams. Most of what I know of Henry Wentworth Akeley was gathered by correspondence with his neighbors and with his only son in California after my experience in his lonely farmhouse. 
He was, I discovered, the last representative living on the home soil of a long, locally distinguished line of jurists, administrators, and gentlemen agriculturalists. In him, however, the family mentally had veered away from practical affairs and into pure scholarship, so that he had been a notable student of mathematics, astronomy, biology, anthropology, and folklore at the University of Vermont. I had never previously heard of him, and he did not give many autobiographical details in his communications. But from the first I saw he was a man of character, education, and intelligence, albeit a recluse with very little worldly sophistication. Despite the incredible nature of what he claimed, I could not help at once taking Akeley more seriously than I had taken any of the other challengers of my views. For one thing, he was very close to the actual phenomena, visibly and tangibly, and so grotesquely speculated about it. And for another thing, he was amazingly willing to leave his conclusions in a tentative state, like a true man of science. He had no personal preferences to advance, and was always guided by what he took to be solid evidence. Of course, I began by considering him mistaken, but gave him credit for being intelligently mistaken, and at no time did I emulate some of his friends in attributing his ideas and fears of the lonely green hills to insanity. I could see that there was a great deal to the man, and knew that what he reported must surely come from strange circumstances deserving investigation, however little it might have to do with the fantastic causes he assigned. Later on, however, I received from him certain material proofs which placed the matter on a somewhat different and bewilderingly bizarre basis. I cannot do better than transcribe in full the long letter in which Akeley introduced himself. Here is the text, a text which reached me in the cramped, archaic-looking scrawl of one who had obviously not mingled much with the world during his sedate, scholarly life. RFD, number two, Townsend. Wyndham County, Vermont, May 5th, 1928, Albert N. Wilmarth, Esquire, Arkham, Massachusetts. My dear sir, I've read with great interest the Battleboro Reformers reprint, April 23, 1928, of your letter on the recent stories of strange bodies seen floating in our flooded streams, and on the curious folklores they do so well agree with. It is easy to see why an outlander would take the position you take, and even why Pendrifter agrees with you. That is the attitude generally taken by educated persons, both in and out of Vermont, and was my own attitude as a young man before my studies, both General and in Davenport's book, led me to explore certain parts of the hills hereabout, not usually visited." I was directed towards such studies by the queer old tales I used to hear from elder farmers and the ignorant sorts, but now I wish I had let the whole matter alone. I might say, with all proper modesty, that the subject of anthropology and folklore is by no means strange to me. I took a good deal of it at college, and am familiar with most of the standard authorities, such as Tyler, Lubbock, Fraser, Murray, so on. It is no news to me that tales of hidden races are as old as all of mankind. I've seen the reprints of letters from you and those agreeing with you in the Rutland Herald, and believe I know about where your controversy stands at the present time. What I desire to say now is that I am afraid your adversaries are nearer right than you yourself, even though all reason seems to be on your side.' 
They are nearer right than they themselves realize, for of course they go only by theory and cannot know what I know. You can see that I am having a hard time getting to the point, probably because I really dread getting to the point. But the upshot of the matter is that I have certain evidence that monstrous things do indeed live in the woods on the high hills seldom visited. I have not seen any of the things floating in the rivers as reported, but I have seen things like them under circumstances I dread to repeat. I have seen footprints, and of late have seen them nearer my own home. I live in the old Akeley place south of Townsend Village, on the side of Dark Mountain, and I have overheard voices in the woods that I will not even begin to describe. At one place I heard them so much that I took a phonograph there, with a dictaphone attached and a wax blank. I shall try to arrange to have you hear the recording I got. I've run it on the machine for some of the elder people up here, and one of the voices nearly scared them to paralysis by reason of its likeness to a certain voice. A buzzing voice in the woods, which Davenport mentions, and that their grandfolk had told them of. I know what most people think of a man who tells of hearing voices, but before you draw conclusions... Just listen to this recording and ask some of the older backwoods folk what they think of it. If you can account for it normally, very well, but there must be something behind it. Now, my object in writing you is not to start an argument, but to give you information which I think a man of your tastes will find interesting. This is private. Publicly I am on your side, for certain things show me that it does not do for people to know too much about these matters. My own studies are now wholly private, and I would not think of saying anything to attract people's attention and cause them to visit the places I've explored. It is true, terribly true, that there are non-human creatures watching us at all times, with spies among us gathering information. It is from a wretched man who, if he was sane, as I think he was, happened to be one of these spies, that I got a large part of my clues to the matter. He later killed himself, but I have reason to think there are others still. The things come from another planet, being able to live in interstellar space and fly through it on clumsy, powerful wings, which have a way of resisting the ether, but which are too poor at steering to be of much use in helping them on Earth. I will tell you about this later, if you do not dismiss me at once as a madman. They come here to acquire metals from mines that go deep under the hills. They will not hurt us if we let them alone, but no one can say what will happen if we get too curious about them. Of course, a good army of men could wipe out their mining colony. That is what they're afraid of. But if that happened, more would come from outside, any number of them. They could easily conquer the earth, but have not tried so far as they have not needed to. They would rather leave things as they are to save bother. I think they mean to get rid of me because of what I've discovered. There is a great black stone with unknown hieroglyphics half-worn away, which I found in the woods on Round Hill, just east of here. And after I took it home, everything became different. If they think I suspect too much, 
They will either kill me or take me off this earth to wherever they come from. They like to take away men of learning now and then to keep informed on the state of things in our world. This leads me to my secondary purpose in addressing you, namely to urge you to hush up the present debate rather than give it more publicity. People must be kept away from those hills, and in order to effect this, their curiosity ought to not be aroused any further. Heaven knows there's peril enough anyway, with promoters and real estate men flooding Vermont with herds of summer people bound to overrun the wild places, cover the hills and cheap bungalows. I shall welcome further communication with you, and I'll try to send you that phonograph recording, as well as the black stone, which is so worn that photographs don't show much. I say try because I think those creatures have a way of tampering with things here. There's a sullen, furtive fellow named Brown on a farm near the village, who I think is their spy. Little by little, they're trying to cut me off from our world, because I know too much about theirs. You may not even get this letter. I think I'll have to leave this part of the country and go live with my son in San Diego. But it's not easy to give up the place you were born in, and where your family's lived for six generations. Also, I would hardly dare sell this house to anybody now that the creatures have taken notice. They seem to be trying to retrieve the black stone back and to destroy the phonograph record, but I shall not let them if I can help it. My great police dogs always hold them back, for there are still few of the creatures here as yet, and they're all clumsy about getting around. As I've said, their wings are not much use for short flights on Earth. I'm on the very brink of deciphering that stone in a very terrible way, and with your knowledge of folklore, you may be able to supply the missing links enough to help me. I suppose you know all about the fearful myths antedating the coming of man to the earth, the Yogg-Sothoth, the Cthulhu cycles, which are hinted at in the Necronomicon. I had access to a copy once, and hear that you have one as well in your college library under lock and key. To conclude, Mr. Wilmarth, I think that with our respective studies we can be very useful to each other. I don't wish to put you in any peril, and suppose I had to warn you that possession of the stone and the record will not be safe, but I think you will find any risks worth running for the sake of knowledge. I will drive down to Newfane or Battleboro to send whatever you authorize me to send, for the express offices there are more to be trusted, hoping that I'm not bothering you unduly, and that you will decide to get in touch with me rather than throw this letter into the wastebasket as a madman's raving. Yours very truly, Henry W. Akeley. P.S. I am making some extra prints of certain photographs I've taken, which I think will help to prove a number of the points I've touched upon. I shall send these to you as well if you're interested. It would be difficult to describe my sentiments upon reading this strange document for the first time. By all ordinary rules, I ought to have laughed more loudly at these extravagances than at the far milder theories which had previously moved me to mirth. Yet something in the tone of the letter made me take it with paradoxical seriousness. Not that I believed for a moment in the hidden race from the stars which my correspondent spoke of, but that after some grave preliminary doubts, I grew to feel oddly sure of his sanity and sincerity, and of his confidence 
confrontation by some genuine, though singular and abnormal, phenomenon, which he could not explain except in his imaginative way. It could not be as he thought, I reflected, yet, on the other hand, it could not be otherwise than worthy of investigation. The man seemed unduly excited and alarmed about something, but it was hard to think that all cause was lacking. He was so specific and logical in certain ways, and after all, his yarn did fit in so perplexingly well with many of the old myths and wildest of Indian legends, that he had really overheard disturbing voices in the hills, and he had really found the black stone of which he spoke was wholly possible." despite the crazy inferences he made, inferences probably suggested by the man who had claimed to be a spy of the outer beings and had later killed himself. And then the matter of that phonograph record, which I could not but believe he'd obtained in the way he said. It must mean something, whether animal noises deceptively like human speech or the speech of some hidden, night-haunting human being decayed to a state not much above that of lower animals. From this, my thoughts went back to the black hieroglyphic stone, and to speculations upon what it might mean. Then, too, what of the photographs which Akeley said he was to send, which the old people had found so convincingly terrible? As I reread the cramped handwriting, I felt as never before that my credulous opponents might have more on their side than I had conceded. After all, there might be some queer and perhaps hereditarily misshapen outcasts in those shunned hills, and if there were, then the presence of strange bodies in the flooded streams would not be wholly beyond belief. Was it too presumptuous to suppose that both the old legends and the recent reports had this much of reality behind them? But even as I harbored these doubts, I felt ashamed that so fantastic a piece of bizarrery as Henry Akeley's wild letter had even brought them up. In the end, I answered Akeley's letter, adopting a tone of friendly interest and soliciting further particulars. His reply came almost immediately by return mail and contained, true to promise, a number of Kodak views of scenes and objects illustrating what he had to tell. Glancing at these pictures as I took them from the envelope, I felt a curious sense of fright and nearness to forbidden things, for in spite of the vagueness of most of them, they had a damnably suggestive power which was intensified by the fact of their being genuine photographs, actual optical links with what they portrayed, the product of an impersonal transmitting process without prejudice or fallibility." The more I looked at them, the more I saw that my sinuous estimate of Akeley and his story had not been unjustified. Certainly these pictures carried conclusive evidence of something in the Vermont hills, which was at least vastly outside the radius of our common knowledge and belief. The worst thing of all was the footprint, a view taken where the sun shone on a mud patch somewhere in a deserted upland. This was no cheaply counterfeited thing, I could see at a glance, for the sharply defined pebbles and grass blades in the field of vision gave a clear index of scale and left no possibility of tricky double exposure. I have called the thing a footprint, but claw print would be a better term. 
Even now I can scarcely describe it, save to say that it was hideously crab-like, and that there seemed to be some ambiguity about its direction. It was not a very deep or fresh print, but seemed to be about the size of an average man's foot. From a central pad, pairs of saw-toothed nippers projected in opposite directions, quite baffling as to function, if indeed the whole object were exclusively an organ of locomotion. Another photograph, evidently a time exposure taken in deep shadow, was at the mouth of a woodland cave with a boulder of rounded regularity choking the aperture. On the bare ground in front of it, one could just discern a dense network of curious tracks, and when I studied the picture with a magnifier, I felt uneasily sure that the tracks were like the one in the other view. A third picture showed a druid-like circle of standing stones on a summit of a wild hill. Around it, a cryptic circle of grass that was very much beaten down and worn away, though I could not detect any footprints, even with the glass. The extreme remoteness of the place was apparent by the mountains, which formed the background, stretching away towards a misty horizon. But if the most disturbing of all the views was that of the footprint, the most curiously suggestive was that of the great black stone found in the round hill woods. Akeley had photographed it on what was evidently a study table, for I could see rows of books and a bust of Milton in the background. The thing, as nearly as one might guess, had faced the camera vertically with a somewhat irregularly curved surface of one or two feet, but to say anything definite about that surface, or about the general shape of the whole mass, almost defies the power of language. What outlandish geometrical principles had guided its cutting? For artificially cut it surely was. I could not even begin to guess, and never before had I seen anything which struck me as so strangely and unmistakably alien to this world. Of the hieroglyphics on the surface I could discern very few, but one or two that I did see gave rather a shock. Of course they might be fraudulent, for others besides myself had read the monstrous and abhorred Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, but it nevertheless made me shiver to recognize certain ideographs which study had taught me to link with the most blood-curdling, blasphemous whispers of things, having a kind of mad half-existence long before the earth and the inner worlds of the solar system were ever made." Of the five remaining pictures, three were of swamp and hill scenes which seemed to bear traces of hidden and unwholesome tenancy. Another was of a queer mark in the ground very near Akeley's house after a night on which the dogs had barked more violently than usual. It was very blurred, and one could draw no certain conclusions from it, aside from that it did appear fiendishly similar to the other mark or claw print photograph on the deserted upland. The final picture was of Akeley's place itself, a trim white house of two stories and attic, about a century and a quarter old, with a well-kept lawn and a stone-bordered path leading up to a tastefully carved Georgian doorway. There were several huge police dogs on the lawn, squatting near a pleasant-faced man with a close-cropped gray beard, whom I took to be Akeley himself, his own photographer, one might infer, from the tube-connected bulb in his right hand. From the pictures I turned to the bulky, closely written letter itself, and for the next three hours was immersed in a gulf of unutterable horror. 
Where Akeley had given only outlines before, he now entered into minute details, presenting long transcripts of words overheard in the woods at night, long accounts of monstrous pinkish forms spied in thickets at twilight, and a terrible cosmic narrative derived from the application of profound and varied scholarship to the endless bygone discourses of the mad, self-styled spy that had killed himself. I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of connections. Yagoth, Great Cthulhu, Sathagua, Yog-Sothoth, Rilie, Nyarlathotep, Azathoth, Haster, Yan, Leng, the Lake of Hali, Beth Mora, the Yellow Sign, Lemor Cthulhus, Bran, and the Magnum Innominandum, and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder outer entity at which the crazed author of the Necronomicon had only guessed in the vaguest ways. I was told of the pits of primal life and of the streams that had trickled down therefrom, and finally of the tiny rivulets from one of those streams that had become entangled with the destinies of our own earth. My brain whirled, and where before I had attempted to explain things away, I now began to believe in the most abnormal and incredible wonders. The array of vital evidence was damnably vast and overwhelming, and the cool scientific attitude of Akeley, an attitude removed as far as imaginable from the demented, the fanatical, the hysterical, or even the extravagantly speculative, had a tremendous effect on my thought and judgment. By the time I laid the frightful letter aside, I could understand the fears he had come to entertain, and was ready to do anything in my power to keep people away from those wild, haunted hills. Even now, when time has dulled the impression and made me half-question my own experience, there are things in that letter of Akeley's which I would dare not quote, or even form into words on paper. I am almost glad that the record and photographs are gone now, and I wish, for reasons I shall soon make clear, that the new planet beyond Neptune has not been discovered. With the reading of that letter, my public debating about the Vermont horror permanently ended. Arguments from opponents remained unanswered or put off with promises, and eventually the controversy petered out into oblivion. During late May and June 1st, I was in constant correspondence with Akeley, though once in a while a letter would be lost, so that we would have to retrace our ground and perform considerable laborious copying. What we were trying to do, as a whole, was to compare notes in matters of obscure, mythological scholarship, and arrive at a clearer correlation of the Vermont horrors with a general body of primitive world legend. For one thing, we virtually decided that these morbidities and the hellish Himalayan Migo were one and the same order of incarnated nightmare. There was also absorbing zoological conjectures, which I would have referred to Professor Dexter at my own college but for Akeley's imperative command in telling no one of the matter before us. If I seem to disobey that command now, it is only because I think that at this stage a warning about those farther Vermont hills is more conducive to public safety than silence would be. 3. Toward the end of June, the phonograph record came, shipped from Battleboro, since Akeley was unwilling to trust conditions on the branch line north of there. 
He'd begun to feel an increased sense of espionage, aggravated by the loss of some of our letters, and said much about the insidious deeds of certain men whom he considered tools and agents of the hidden beings. Most of all, he suspected the surly farmer, Walter Brown, who lived alone on a run-down hillside place near the deep woods, and who was often seen loafing around corners in Battleboro, Bellows Falls, Newfane, and South Londonbury, in the most inexplicable and seemingly unmotivated ways. Brown's voice, he felt convinced, was one of those he'd overheard on a certain occasion in a very terrible conversation, and he had once found a footprint or claw print near Brown's house which seemed to possess an ominous significance. It had been curiously near some of Brown's own footprints, footprints that faced towards the thing. So the recording was shipped from Battleboro, where Akeley drove his old Ford along lonely Vermont roads. He confessed in an accompanying note that he was beginning to be afraid of those roads, and that he would not even go into Townsend for supplies anymore except in broad daylight. It did not pay, he repeated again and again, to know too much, unless one were very remote from those silent and problematical hills." Before trying the record on the commercial machine I'd borrowed from the college administration building, I carefully went over all the explanatory matter in Akeley's various letters. This record, he had said, was obtained about 1 a.m. on the 1st of May, 1915, near the closed mouth of a cave where the wooded west slope of Dark Mountain rises from Lee's Swamp. The place had always been unusually plagued with strange noises, this being the reason he'd brought the phonograph and dictaphone in expectation of results. Former experience had told him that May Eve, the hideous Sabbath night of underground European legend, would probably be more truthful than any other date, and he was not disappointed. It was noteworthy, though, that he never again heard voices at that particular spot. Unlike most of the overheard forest voices, the substance of the recording was quasi-ritualistic and included one palpably human voice, which Akeley had never been able to place. It was not Brown's, but seemed to be that of a man of greater cultivation. The second voice, however, was the real crux of the thing, for this was the accursed buzzing which had no likeness to humanity, despite the human words it uttered in English grammar with a scholarly accent. The recording, phonograph, and dictaphone had not worked uniformly well and had been at a great disadvantage because of the remote and muffled nature of the overhead ritual, so that the actual speech secured was very fragmentary. Akeley had given me a transcript of what he believed the spoken words to be, and I glanced through this again as I prepared the machine for action. The text was darkly mysterious rather than openly horrible, though a knowledge of its origin and manner of gathering gave it all the associative horrors that any words could well possess. I will present the recording here, which I am fairly confident I know now by heart, not only from reading the transcript, but from playing the record over and over again. It is not a thing which one might readily forget. Is the Lord of the Wood and the gifts of the men of Lang? 
So from the wells of night to the gulfs of space, and from the gulfs of space to the wells of night, ever the praises of great Cthulhu, of Chisthagwa, and of him who is not to be named. Ever their praises and abundance to the black goat of the woods. Yah, Shab Negarath, the goat with a thousand young. Yah, Shab Negarath, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. And it has come to pass that the Lord of the Woods, being seven and nine, down the onyx steps. Tributes to him in the gulf, Azathoth, he of whom thou hast taught us marvels. On the wings of night, out beyond space, out beyond to that whereof Yagoth is the youngest child, rolling alone in black ether at the rim. Go out among men and find the ways thereof that he in the gulf may know. To Nyarlathotep, mighty messenger, must all things be told. It was with a trace of genuine dread and reluctance that I first pressed the lever and heard the preliminary scratching of the sapphire point, and I was glad that the first faint, fragmentary words were in a human voice, a mellow, educated voice which seemed vaguely Bostonian in accent, certainly not that of any native of the Vermont hills. As I listened to the tantalizingly feeble rendering, I seemed to find the speech identical with Akeley's carefully prepared transcript. On it chanted in that mellow voice, Yah, Shab Niggeroth, the goat with a thousand young. And then I heard the other voice. To this hour I shudder retrospectively when I think of how it struck me, prepared though I was by Akeley's accounts. Those to whom I've since described the record profess to find nothing but cheap imposture or madness in it. But could they have heard the accursed thing itself, or read the bulk of Akeley's correspondence, especially that terrible and encyclopedic second letter, I know they would think differently. It is, after all, a tremendous pity that I did not disobey Akeley and play the record for others." To me, with my first-hand impression of the actual sounds and with my knowledge of the background and surrounding circumstances, the voice was a monstrous thing. It swiftly followed the human voice in ritualistic response, but in my imagination was a morbid echo winging its way across unimaginable abysses from unimaginable outer hells. It is more than two years now since I last ran off that blasphemous waxen cylinder, but at this moment, and at all others, I can still hear that feeble, fiendish buzzing as it reached for me that first time. Yah, Shab Niggeroth, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. 
But though the voice is always in my ears, I have not even yet been able to analyze it well enough for graphic description. It was like the drone of some loathsome, gigantic insect ponderously shaped into the articulate speech of an alien species, and I am perfectly certain that the organs producing it can have no resemblance to the vocal organs of man or those of any animal. There were singularities in timbre, range, and overtones which placed this phenomenon wholly outside the sphere of humanity and earth life. Its sudden advent that first time stunned me, and I heard the rest of the record through in a sort of abstracted daze. At last the record ended abruptly, and I sat stupidly staring long after the machine had stopped. I hardly need say that I gave that recording many another play, and that I made exhaustive attempts at analysis and commentary in comparing notes with Akeley. It would be both useless and disturbing to repeat here all that we concluded. It seemed plain to us that there were ancient and elaborate alliances between the hidden outer creatures and certain members of the human race. How extensive those alliances were, and how their state today might compare with their state in earlier ages, we had no means of guessing. Yet at best there was room for a limitless amount of horrifying speculation. There seemed to be an awful immemorial linkage in several definite stages betwixt man and nameless infinity. The blasphemies which appeared on earth, it was hinted, came from the dark planet Yagoth at the rim of the solar system. But this was itself merely the populous outpost of a frightful interstellar race whose ultimate source must lie far outside even the Einsteinian space-time continuum or greater known cosmos. Meanwhile, we continued to discuss the Black Stone and the best way of getting it to Arkham. Akeley deemed it inadvisable to have me visit him at the scene of his nightmare studies. He was afraid to trust the thing to any ordinary or expected transportation route. His final idea was to take it across country to Bellows Falls and ship it on the Boston and Maine system through Keene, Winchendom, and Fitchburg, even though this would necessitate his driving along somewhat lonelier, more forest-traversing hill roads than the main highway to Battleboro. Akeley said he'd noticed a man around the express office at Battleboro when he'd sent the phonograph record, whose actions and expression had been far from reassuring. This man had seemed too anxious to talk with the clerks, and had taken the train on which the record was shipped. Akeley confessed that he had not felt strictly at ease about the record until he heard from me of its safe receipt. By this time, the second week in July, another letter of mine went astray, as I learned through an anxious communication from Akeley. After that, he told me to address him no more at Townsend, and to send all mail in care of the general delivery at Battleboro. I could see that he was getting more and more anxious, for he went into much detail about the increased barking of the dogs on moonless nights, and about the fresh claw prints he sometimes found in the road, and in the mud at the back of his farmyard when morning came. Once he told me about a veritable army of prints drawn up in a line facing an equally thick and resolute line of dog tracks, and sent a loathsomely disturbing Kodak picture to prove it. That was after a night on which the dogs had outdone themselves in howling. 
On the morning of Wednesday, July 18th, I received a telegram from Bellows Falls, in which Akeley said he was expressing the black stone over the B&M on train 5508, leaving Bellows Falls at 12.15 p.m. Standard Time. It ought, I calculated, get up to Arkham at least by the next noon, and accordingly I stayed in all Thursday morning to receive it. But noon came and went without its advent, and when I telephoned down to the express office, I was informed that no shipment for me had arrived. My next act, performed amidst a growing alarm, was to give a long-distance call to the express agent at the Boston North Station, and I was scarcely surprised to learn that my consignment had not appeared. Train 5508 had pulled in only 35 minutes late on the day before, but had contained no box addressed to me. The agent promised, however, to institute a searching inquiry, and I ended the day by sending Akeley a night letter outlining the situation. With commendable promptness, a report came from the Boston office on the following afternoon, the agent telephoning as soon as he'd learned the facts. It seemed that the railway express clerk on number 5508 had been able to recall an incident which might have much bearing on my loss, an argument with a very curious-voiced man, lean, sandy, and rustic-looking, when the train was waiting at Keene, New Hampshire, shortly after one o'clock standard time. The man, he said, was greatly excited about a heavy box, which he claimed to expect, but which was neither on the train nor entered on the company's books. He'd given the name of Stanley Adams, and it had such a queerly thick droning voice that it made the clerk abnormally dizzy and sleepy to just listen to him. The clerk could not remember quite how the conversation ended, but recalled starting into a fuller awakeness when the train began to move. The Boston agent added that the clerk was a young man of wholly unquestioned veracity and reliability, of known antecedents, and long with the company. Naturally, Akeley joined me in conducting these inquiries, and even made a personal trip to Keene to question the people around the station, but his attitude toward the matter was more fatalistic than mine. He seemed to find the loss of the box a portentous and menacing fulfillment of inevitable tendencies, and had no real hope at all of its recovery. He spoke of the undoubted telepathic and hypnotic powers of the hill creatures and their agents, and in one letter hinted that he did not believe the stone was even on this earth any longer. For my part, I was duly enraged, for I'd felt there was at least a chance of learning profound and astonishing things from the old, blurred hieroglyphics. The matter would have rankled bitterly in my mind had not Akeley's immediately subsequent letters brought up a new phase of the whole horrible hill problem, which at once seized my attention. 4. The unknown things, Akeley wrote in a script grown pitifully tremulous, had begun to close in on him with a wholly new degree of determination. The nocturnal barking of the dogs whenever the moon was dim or absent was hideous now, and there had been attempts to molest him by the lonely roads he traversed by day. On the 2nd of August, while bound for the village in his car, he'd found a tree trunk laid in his path at a point where the highway ran through a deep patch of woods. While the savage barking of the two great dogs he had with him told him all too well of the things which must have been lurking near. What would have happened had those dogs not been here, he did not dare guess, but he never went out now with at least two of his faithful and powerful pack. Other road experiences had occurred on August 5th and 6th, a shot grazing his car on one occasion, and the barking of the dogs telling of unholy woodland presences on the other. 
On August 15th, I received a frantic letter which disturbed me greatly, and which made me wish Akeley could put aside his lonely reticence and call in the aid of the law. There had been a frightful happening on the night of the 12th through 13th, bullets flying outside the farmhouse, with three of the twelve great dogs found shot dead in the morning. There were myriads of claw prints in the road, with the human prints of Walter Brown among them. Akeley had started to telephone to Battleboro for more dogs, but the wire had gone dead before he had chance to say much. Later he went to Battleboro in his car and learned that the linemen had found the main cable nearly cut at a point where it ran through the deserted hills north of Newfane. He was about to start home with four fine new dogs and several cases of ammunition for his big game repeating rifle. The letter was written at the post office in Battleboro and came through to me without delay. My attitude toward the matter was by this time quickly slipping from scientific to an alarmedly personal one. I was afraid for Akeley in his remote, lonely farmhouse, and was half afraid for myself because of my now definite connection with the strange hill problem. In replying to his letter, I urged him to seek help and hinted that I might take action myself if he did not. I spoke of visiting Vermont in person, in spite of his wishes, and of helping him explain the situation to the proper authorities. In return, however, I received only a telegram from Bellows Falls, which read thus, "'Appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, for it could only harm both. Wait for explanation.' Henry Akeley. But the affair was steadily deepening. Upon my replying to the telegram, I received a shaky note from Akeley with the astonishing news that he had not only never sent the wire, but had not received the letter from me to which it was an obvious reply. Hasty inquiries by him at Bellows Falls had brought out that the message was deposited by a strange sandy-haired man with a curiously thick droning voice. The clerk showed him the original text as scrawled in pencil by the sender, but the handwriting was wholly unfamiliar. It was noticeable that the signature was misspelled A-K-E-L-Y without the second E. Certain conjectures were inevitable, but amidst the obvious crisis he did not stop to elaborate upon them. He spoke of the death of more dogs and the purchase of still others, and of the exchange of gunfire which had become a settled feature each moonless night. Brown's prints, and the prints of at least one or two more shod human figures, were now found regularly among the claw prints in the road, as well as in the back of the farmyard. He must try to hang on a little longer, long enough to get his things in order and reconcile himself to the idea of leaving an almost morbidly cherished birthplace. Perhaps he could scare off the intruders, especially if he openly gave up all further attempts to penetrate their secrets. He hoped there would not be many densely cloudy nights, and talked vaguely of boarding in Battleboro when the moon waned. Again, I wrote him encouragingly, but on September 5th there came a fresh communication which had obviously crossed my letters in the mail, and to this I could not give any such hopeful response. In view of its importance, I believe I had better give it in full. It ran as follows. Monday. Dear Wilmerth, a rather discouraging P.S. to my prior letter. Last night was thickly cloudy, though without rain, and not a bit of moonlight got through. Things were pretty bad, and I believe the end is getting near, in spite of all we have hoped. 
After midnight, something landed on the roof of the house, and the dogs all rushed up to see what it was. I could hear them snapping and tearing around, and then one managed to get on the roof by jumping from the lower L. There was a terrible fight up there, and I heard a frightful buzzing that I'll never forget. And then came a shocking smell, and about the same time, bullets came through the window, nearly grazing me. I think the main line of the hill creatures had gotten close to the house when the dogs divided because of the business on the roof. What was up there I don't know yet, but I'm afraid the creatures are leaning to steer better with their wings. I put out the light and used the windows for loopholes, then raked all around the house with rifle fire, aimed just high enough so as not to hit the dogs. That seemed to end the business, but in the morning I found great pools of blood all about the yard. Besides pools of green, sticky stuff with the worst odor I've ever smelled. I climbed up on the roof and found more of the sticky stuff up there. Five of the dogs were killed. I'm afraid I hit one myself by aiming too low. Now I'm setting the pains the shots broke, and I'm going later to Battleboro for more dogs. I guess the men at the kennels think I'm crazy. We'll drop another note later. Suppose I'll be ready for moving now in a week or two, though it nearly kills me to think about it. Hastily, Akeley. But this was not the only letter from Akeley to Crossmine. On the next morning, September 6th, still came another. This time a frantic scrawl which utterly unnerved me and put me at a loss as to what to say next. Again, I cannot do better than quote the text directly. Tuesday. Clouds didn't break, so no moon again. It was going into the wane anyhow. I'd have the house wired for electricity and put in a searchlight if I didn't know they'd cut the cables as fast as they could be mended. I think I'm going crazy. It may be that all I've ever written you is dream or madness. It was bad enough before, but this time it's too much. They talked to me last night, talked in that cursed, buzzing voice, and told me things that I dare not repeat. I heard them plainly above the barking of the dogs, and once, when they were drowned out, a human voice helped them. Keep out of this, Wilmerth. It is worse than either you or I suspected. They don't mean to let me go to California now. They want to take me off alive, or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive, not only to Yugoth, but beyond that, away outside the galaxy and beyond the last curving rim of space— I told them I wouldn't go, but I'm afraid it will be no use. My place is so far out that they may come by day as well as by night before long. Six more dogs killed, and I felt presences all along the wooded parts of the road when I drove to Battleboro today. It was a mistake for me to try and send you that phonograph record and the black stone. Better smash the record before it's too late. We'll drop you another line tomorrow, if I'm still here. It is horrible. Don't get mixed up in this. Yours, Akeley. I did not sleep at all that night after receiving this terrible thing, and was utterly baffled as to Akeley's remaining degree of sanity. The substance of the note was wholly insane, yet the manner of expression, in view of all that had gone before, had a grimly potent quality of convincingness. I made no attempt to answer it, thinking it better to wait until Akeley might have had time to reply to my latest communication. Such a reply indeed came on the following day. Wednesday. Your letter came, 
but it's no use discussing anything anymore. I'm fully resigned. Wonder if I even have enough willpower left to fight them off. Can't escape. They will get me. Got a letter from them yesterday. An RFD man brought it while I was at Battleboro, typed and postmarked Bellows Falls. Tells what they want to do with me, and I can't repeat it. Look out for yourself. Smash that record. Cloudy nights are keeping up, the moon waning all the time. Wish I dared to get help. It might brace up my willpower, but everyone who would dare to come would call me crazy. And hell, I've been out of touch with everyone for years. But I haven't told you the worst, Wilmarth. Brace up to read this. I'm telling you the truth. I have seen and touched one of the things, or part of one. Gods, man, but it was awful. It was dead, of course. One of the dogs had it, and I found it near the kennel this morning. I tried to save it in the woodshed to convince people of the whole ordeal, but it had all but evaporated in just a few hours. Nothing left. You remember all those things in the rivers were seen only on the first morning, right after the flood? And here's the worst. I tried to photograph it for you, but when I developed the film... There wasn't anything visible except the woodshed. What can the thing have been made of? I saw it, I felt it, and they leave footprints. It was surely made of matter, but what kind of matter? The shape cannot be described. It was a great crab with many pyramided flesh rings or knots of thick, ropey stuff covered with feelers where a man's head would be. That great sticky stuff is its blood or its juice, and there are more of them coming to earth soon. Walter Brown is missing, hasn't been seen loafing around any of his usual corners in the villages lately. I must have got him with one of my shots, though the creatures always seem to try to take the dead and wounded away. Got into town this afternoon without any trouble, and writing this in Battleboro. This may be goodbye. If it is, please write my son, George Akeley, 176 Pleasant Street, San Diego, California. But for God's sakes, man, don't come up here. Write the boy if you don't hear from me in a week. Watch the papers for news. I'm going to play my last two cards now, if I have the willpower left. First, to try poison gas on the things. I've got the right chemicals and a fixed-up masks for myself and the dogs. And then if that doesn't work... I'll tell the sheriff. They can lock me in a madhouse if they want to. It'll be better than what the creatures will do. Perhaps I can get them to pay attention to the prints around the house. They're faint, but I can find them every morning. Suppose, though, police would say I faked them somehow, for they all think I'm a queer character. They've all shunned my place for so long that they don't know of the new events. But I may yet try showing the pictures. They give those claw prints clearly, even if the things that made them can't be photographed. What a shame nobody else saw that thing this morning before it went to nothing. Write my son George, if you don't hear from me soon. Smash the record and don't mix up in this. Goodbye, Akeley. This letter plunged me into the blackest of terror. I did not know what to say in answer, but scratched off some incoherent words of advice and encouragement and sent them by registered mail. I recall urging Akeley to move to Battleboro at once and place himself under the protection of the authorities, adding that I would come to that town with the phonograph record and help convince the courts of his sanity. It was time, too, I think I wrote, to alarm the people in their midst. 
On September 8th came that curiously different and calming letter, neatly typed on a new machine, that strange letter of reassurance and invitation which must have marked so prodigious a transition in the whole nightmare drama of those lonely hills. To say that the letter relieved me would only be fair, yet beneath my relief lay a substratum of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, was he now sane in his deliverance? And the sort of improved rapport mentioned, what was it? The entire thing implied such a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude. But here is the substance of the text, carefully transcribed. Townsend, Vermont. Thursday, September 6th, 1928. My dear Wilmerth, it gives me great pleasure to be able to set you at rest regarding all the silly things I've been writing you. I say silly, although by that I mean my frightened attitude rather than my descriptions of certain phenomena. Those phenomena are real and important enough. My mistake had been in establishing an anomalous attitude toward them. I think I mentioned that my strange visitors were beginning to communicate with me. Last night this exchange of speech became an actual. In response to certain signals, I admitted to the house a messenger from those outside, a fellow human, let me hasten to say. He told me much that neither you nor I had even begun to guess, and showed clearly how totally we'd misjudged and misinterpreted the purpose of the Outer Ones in maintaining their secret colony. It seems that the evil legends about what they have offered to men and what they wish in connection with this earth are wholly the result of an ignorant misconception of allegorical speech. A speech, of course, molded by cultural backgrounds and thought, habits vastly different from anything we dream of. My own conjectures, I freely own, shot as widely past the mark as any of the guesses of illiterate farmers and savage Indians. What I had thought morbid and shameful and ignominious is in reality awesome and mind-expanding and even glorious, my previous estimate being merely a phase of man's eternal tendency to hate and fear and shrink from the utterly different." Now I regret the harm I have inflicted upon these alien and incredible beings in the course of our nightly skirmishes. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place. But they bear me no grudge, their emotions being organized very differently from ours. It is their misfortune to have had, as their human agents in Vermont, some very inferior specimens. The late Walter Brown, for example. He prejudiced me vastly against them. In actuality, they have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged and spied upon by our species. There is a whole secret cult of evil men. Any man of your mystical erudition will understand me when I link them with Haster and the Yellow Sign, devoted to the purpose of tracking them down, injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the Outer Ones are directed." Incidentally, I learned that many of our lost letters were stolen not by the Outer Ones, but by the emissaries of this malign cult. All that the Outer Ones wish of man is peace and non-molestation, and an increasing intellectual rapport. This latter is obviously necessary now that our inventions and devices are expanding our knowledge and motions, making it more and more impossible for the Outer Ones' necessary outposts to exist secretly on this planet. 
The alien beings desire to know mankind more fully and to have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. With such an exchange of knowledge, all perils will pass, and a satisfactory modus vivendi will be established. The very idea of any attempt to enslave or degrade mankind is ridiculous. As a beginning of this improved rapport, the outer ones have naturally chosen me, whose knowledge of them is already so considerable as their primary interpreter on earth. Much was told to me last night, facts of the most stupendous and vista-opening nature, and more will be subsequently communicated to me both orally and in writing. I shall not be called upon to make any trip outside just yet, though I shall probably wish to do so later on, employing special means and transcending everything which we have hitherto been accustomed to regard as human experience. My house will be besieged no longer. Everything has reverted to normal, and the dogs will have no further occupation. In place of terror, I have been given a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure, which few other mortals have ever shared. The outer beings are perhaps the most marvelous organic things in or beyond all space and time, members of a cosmos-wide race of which all other life-forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than animal, if these terms can be applied to the sort of matter composing them, and have a somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true cormophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having a wholly different vibration rate. That is why the beings cannot be photographed on the ordinary camera, even though our eyes can see them. With proper knowledge, however, any good chemist could make a photographic emulsion which would record their images. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the heatless, airless interstellar void in full corporeal form, and some of its variants cannot do this without mechanical aid or curious surgical transpositions. Only a few species have the ether-resisting wings characteristic of the Vermont variety. Those inhabiting certain remote peaks in the old world were brought here in other ways. Their external resemblance to animal life and to the sort of structure we understand as material is a matter of parallel evolution rather than that of close kinship. Their brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the wing types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Telepathy is their usual means of discourse, though they have rudimentary vocal organs which, after a slight operation, can roughly duplicate the speech of such types of organism as still use speech. Their main abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune, and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as Yagoth in certain ancient and forbidden writings, and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the Outer Ones wished them to do so. But Yagoth, of course, is only the stepping stone. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. 
The space-time globule which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been not to more than fifty other men since the human race existed. You will probably call this raving at first, Wilmarth, but in time you will appreciate the titanic opportunity I've stumbled upon. I want you to share as much of it as possible, and to that end must tell you thousands of things that won't go on paper. In the past I've warned you not to come and see me. Now that all is safe, I take pleasure in rescinding that warning and inviting you. Can't you make a trip up here before your college term opens? It would be marvelously delightful if you could. Bring along the phonograph recording and all my letters to you as consultive data. We shall need them in piecing together the whole tremendous story. You might bring the Kodak prints, too, since I seem to have mislaid the negatives and all my own prints and all this recent excitement. But what a wealth of facts I have to add to all this groping and tentative material. And what a stupendous device I have to supplement my additions. Don't hesitate. I am free from espionage now, and you will not meet anything unnatural or disturbing. Just come along and let my car meet you at the Battleboro Station. Prepare to stay as long as you can, and expect many an evening of discussion of things beyond all human conjecture. Don't tell anyone about it, of course, for this matter must not get to the promiscuous public. Awaiting word, and hoping to see you shortly with the phonograph record and all my letters. Yours in anticipation, Henry Akeley. To Albert Wilmarth, Esquire, Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. The complexity of my emotions upon reading, rereading, and pondering over this strange and unlooked-for letter is past adequate description. I have said that I was at once relieved and made uneasy, but this expresses only crudely the overtones of diverse and largely subconscious feelings which comprised both my relief and the uneasiness. To begin with, the thing was so antipodally at variance with the whole chain of horrors preceding it, the change of mood from stark terror to cool complacency so unheralded, lightning-like, and complete. I could scarcely believe that a single day could so alter the psychological perspective of one who had written that final, frenzied bulletin of Wednesday, no matter what relieving disclosures that day might have brought." At certain moments, a sense of conflicting unrealities made me wonder whether this whole distantly reported drama of fantastic forces were not a kind of half-illusory dream. The man's whole personality seemed to have undergone an insidious mutation, a mutation so deep that one could scarcely reconcile his two aspects with the supposition that both represented equal sanity. I did not retire Saturday night, but sat up thinking of the shadows and marvels behind the letter I'd received. My mind, aching from the quick succession of monstrous conceptions it had been forced to confront during the last four months, worked upon this startling new material in a cycle of doubt and acceptance. Mad or sane, metamorphosed or merely relieved, the chances were that Akeley had actually encountered some stupendous change of perspective in his hazardous search, some change at once diminishing his danger, real or fancied, and opening dizzy new vistas of cosmic, superhuman knowledge. My own zeal for the unknown flared up to meet his, and I felt myself touched by the contagion of the morbid barrier-breaking. 
to shake off the maddening, wearying limitations of time, space, and natural law, to be linked with the vast outside, to come close to the nighted, abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate. Surely such a thing was worth the risk of one man's life, soul, and sanity. And Akeley had said there was no longer any peril. He had invited me to visit him instead of warning me away as before. I tingled at the thought of what he might now have to tell me. There was an almost paralyzing fascination in the thought of sitting in that lonely, late beleaguered farmhouse with a man who had talked with actual emissaries from outer space. So late, Sunday morning, I telegraphed Akeley that I would meet him in Battleboro on the following Wednesday, if that date were convenient for him. I slept soundly and long that night, and was eagerly busy with preparations during the ensuing two days ahead. Hope you enjoyed. Since this is easily the longest story that Drabblecast has ever done, next week we're going to jump right into the story. No intro or anything. Stay tuned, because hot damn, wait till you find out what's going on in those sloping, forgotten Vermont hills. All right, time for our H.P. Lovecraft's nameless, inconceivable, maddening madlibs. H.P. Lovecraft's inane, inconceivable, maddening madlibs. Brought to you by Subway. Eat fresh. I'm going to be prompting and collecting words for the weekly Maddening Madlib on Twitter each Wednesday this month at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Audience participation is critical to making this thing fun, folks, so set your calendars. I set word prompts each minute, like, give me a verb, give me a proper noun, give me a fake book title, give me a made-up word in a ridiculous made-up language. I pick my favorite each minute and write it down on the blank space, pre-made substituting a word from the original text. It's good, noisome fun. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter if you want to participate this upcoming week. Our Twitter handle is at the Drabblecast. Congrats and many thanks to our contributing Mad Libbers this week. Baltimore Canary, Carolyn M. Yoakum, Micah Joel, Patrick Wakeman, Erica Weems, Josh P. Murphy, and Hugh O'Donnell. Here we go. I turned to the bulky, closely written letter itself, and for the next three hours was immersed in a gulf of unutterable horror. Whereas before Akeley had given a few bitchin' outlines, he now entered in minute detail, presenting long transcripts of accursed Pomeranians overheard in the woods at night, long accounts of swarthy, pseudo-Shatnerian forms spied in thickets at twilights on the hills, and a terrible cosmic narrative derived from the application of profound and zesty scholarship. I found myself faced by names and terms that I had heard elsewhere in the most hideous of dominatrix basements. Yagoth, 
Great Cthulhu, Atrak, the level 12 robot monk battlefinch, Yog Sothoth, Relie, Argba Snork, Hyper France, Nyarlathotep, Azathoth, Republicans, the Lake of Holly, the Jersey Shore, Beth Mora, the Yellow Sign, Lemur Cthulhu's Dianetics, Hamdingers, and the Magnum Tub Thumpinandum and was drawn back through nameless eons and inconceivable dimensions to worlds of elder, outer entity just above and to the left. Worlds of which the crazed and gibbering author of Goodnight Moon could have only guessed in the vaguest of ways. And hey, while we're still talking Twitter, let's hit our 100-character story winner this week. First-time winner and Drabblecast forum member, The Sixth Doctor. Here it goes. On his return to Earth, reporters asked him if life on Mars had changed him. He gazed back at them. They were obliterated. One hundred character stories, not counting spaces. We call them twabbles. We pick a winner from our forums at forums.drabblecast.org each week and post it out on Twitter. You might be next week's winner. Give it a shot. Post it in our twabble section in the forums. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Be a pal and write us a review on iTunes. We greatly appreciate it. Or you can tell a friend or blog about us. Special thanks to our awesome episode artist this week, P. Emerson Williams. And man, did he nail it. P. Emerson Williams is an artist, musician, actor, and writer who works in a creative continuum that draws upon an interest in the arcane and esoteric. His passion is for embodying the mythic in visual media and melding visual art with narrative form. As a musician, he's worked with Sleep Chamber, Jarbo, Mans, Coagula, Argbasnork, and many others. Our program this week was brought to you by Chief Editor Nathan Lee, our art director, Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, Pluto's not a planet. It's much, much more. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.